I can't hear that song without thinking about the faithful generations before us who have remained true to the Word of God and have sacrificed and handed down to us the truth. I, I was thinking about my own two grandfathers who remained faithful to the Word of God till their dying breath and handed down the truth that we might know the gospel, that I might know the gospel, and be able to be saved by Jesus Christ through the truth of God's Word, and then to be able to hand it down to my children, and now handing it down to my grandchildren. And We owe a great debt to our forefathers who remained faithful, not just one or two generations ago, but, but throughout the history of Christianity, as generation after generation has remained faithful and true to the Word of God and has proclaimed it and handed it down to us down through these ages. I'm not sure if, if all of you know this, but next February, Calvary Baptist Church will celebrate our 90th birthday as a congregation. Is that not uh, amazing? And many of you in here have have grandfathers and grandmothers who remain faithful and handed down the truth to you. And it is our responsibility to take what they've given to us, apply it to our lives, and make sure that we hand the mantle of faithfulness and truth to the next generations that are coming. Not only do they hand us the truth of God's Word, but they, they gave to us out of their sacrifice this resource that we enjoy. Most of us here did not sacrifice for the resource that we enjoy whereby we can share the gospel of truth to the community of Oshawa and in the Durham region. But others have sacrificed that we might. And they've handed this resource to us in trust that we might take care of the resource and advance the cause of Christ and advance the usefulness of this resource. So as we think about our great discipleship expectations and, and moving forward and, and sacrificing in our generation, it's our responsibility to take what they've given to us and magnify its opportunities and increase its resourcefulness and finish and complete the vision that they have always had. So. Let's continue to pray and ask the Lord what he wants us to do. Um, I have a, a basic philosophy that I believe is, is biblical, and it's simply this, that, that I want to I give to the Lord the best I can from the best that he has given to me. I don't want to stand before the Lord someday and for him to say, you know what, you, you could have done more with what I, with what I gave you. I, I want to... I want to spend everything that God has given me on what God has called me to do. And, and I trust that that might be something that you think about as well, of being able to stand before the Lord. Because the Word of God says, to whom much is given, much is required. And I think you'll agree with me, as you look at the world, that we have been given so much. So let's make sure that we in our generation are faithful and sacrificial that the generations yet to come will honor the truth and will pass it on to the generations after them. Well, I have a couple of questions for you this morning. One is, do you remember the definition of the church? Because the first service really was a letdown this morning. A real disappointment to me. I gave them alliteration last week, four C's, how, how easy, how much more can I put it out on a, on a plate for you? But I know better things will happen in here this morning. The church is a called out, confessing, community, commissioned to teach the commands of Christ to the next generation. You actually did better than the first service. There was more truthful murmurings in here in this service than the one before. And so at the very end of that, it, said, it says we are commissioned to teach the commands of Christ to the next generation. We are commissioned to teach the commands of Christ. So it seems to me that we need to be specialists or we need to know what these commands are. 
So today we're talking about the doctrine of the scripture, the, the truth about God's word. A couple of questions for you this morning. Where do you go when you need your faith propped up, your hope infused, and love assured to you? Where do you go for that? When you um, have to make a decision on life or a lifestyle, where do you go for authority in terms of making that decision? When you, um, do, you have, do you have an authority? When, when you're called upon to, to turn in some direction or you need to turn somewhere or you, you need somewhere that you can be sure that you will intersect with certain truth, where do you go? Seems to me as we survey the landscape of our culture and particularly in the Christian culture, we have some work to do in terms of our understanding of the truth about God's word and the doctrine of the Holy Scriptures. Do you believe that, that this, the word of God, is truth for life, but, but between Sunday mornings you barely, if ever, even look at it? Do you um, allow other information to compete with the truth of God's word? So I want to talk to you today about, about God's Word, the doctrine of the Holy Scriptures. What's the truth about God's Word? I want to look at it from four descriptions or declarations. I want to talk about the primacy of God's Word. I want to talk about the fact that the Scriptures are God's provision to us. I want to talk to you about the fact that God's Word is, a, is protection to us. And then I want to talk to you about the, the posture that we should take with respect to God's word. So that's where we're heading this morning, but let's uh, pause for prayer and ask the Holy Spirit to guide us into truth. Our Father, I pray today, as we take on this awesome responsibility of speaking for your word, of speaking about your word, and in fact speaking your word, that it will be done truthfully and accurately as you have handed it to us, and Lord, I pray that you will give me uh, strength to um, represent you and your truth. I pray, oh God, that you would open up our hearts, you would clear away the clutter. I pray that we would have conviction, be convinced of what we have heard, what we have learned uh, as it applies to your word. Lord, that uh, we might be faithful in our lives as the generation before us was to remain steadfast in your truth. Then to hand it to us and give this torch and responsibility to us to, to proclaim the truth and not waver from it, that we might hand it to the next generation, Lord. And so I pray this morning that we will have the power and presence of your spirit as has been promised to us, where we are gathered, there you are in the midst, and that you will change our lives. For I ask this in Jesus' name and for his sake, amen. So what's the truth about God's word? It's almost like saying, what's the truth about truth? It's true. God's word is our primary source of truth. Increasingly, people of, of faith, the people who claim to be in the family of God, are relying on truth from secondary sources. They're spending more time reading about the Bible or reading about God in secondary sources than they are actually reading from God's voice, from God's word, the scriptures. The greatest king who ever lived, who ever lived on this earth, King David, states this about um, just in a little section of, uh, of his great love for the word of God. Psalm 119. I want to start there this morning. Psalm 119, in fact, the whole psalm, all 176 verses are about the Word of God. Have you ever dug into this psalm? Interestingly, the sections are the characters of the Hebrew alphabet. So you can have a little crash course and even the pronunciation is given for you so that you can learn a little bit of Hebrew just by reading Psalm 119. But in Lamed, section Lamed, verse 89, 
David states this, your word, O Lord, is eternal. It stands firm in the heavens. Your faithfulness continues through all generations. And we are testimony to that this morning. Through several thousand generations, you establish the earth and it endures. Your laws endure to this day for all things serve you. If your law had not been my delight, I would have perished in my affliction. Over to verse 105. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light for my path. And I've taken an oath and confirmed it that I will follow your righteous laws. Have you made that promise to God? Have you ever indicated your loyalty to God and to his word? Have you, have you made a, a covenant with God, an oath, with a, a promise to God? That your word, O oh God, I will follow. I will follow your righteous laws. Well, David did. David was a man after God's own heart. Well, God's word is our primary source of truth. I want to get some nomenclature out of the way so we understand what we're talking about because when we're talking about God's word, we, we have about three different things at least that we say. We say my, the Bible, we say scripture, we say the word of God, the truth. Well, where do we get all these terms from? First of all, Bible. Where does Bible come from? Bible comes from the Latin word biblos. It also comes from the Greek word biblia. In fact, Daniel in Daniel 9.2 used the word the Hebrew word would be translated books, plural. So when we're talking about Biblos or Biblia or Bible, we're talking about books. So when you say, I brought my Bible with me to church, did you bring your Bible with you to church? Don't show me any electronic stuff. Did you bring, bring your Bible? There you go. <laughs> yeah, very good. You're saying that I brought the books because in it is 66 books written by some 40 authors over 1,400 years with a single message, the glory of God through the redemption of mankind. Now that may be, you may be so used to that and hearing that information that it doesn't touch you anymore, it doesn't move you at all, but I would encourage you to be moved again this morning because that's, that's an incredible thing. That Forty authors spread over 1,400 years would put together a message that is continuous and, 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 and uh, not in conflict, but in continuity of God, His glory, who He is, and what He's doing, redeeming mankind. If you start at the beginning of the book and you get to the end of the book, the message is the same. It's the revelation of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. It's an incredible thing that we have. There are many, many books written in the world. There are many critiques of this, these books. There are lots of arguments going on about these books. There's been constant scholarship argument and academia argument against these books. But there are no books in all the world that are like our book, the scriptures, the holy scriptures, that have this central message. It's truly supernatural what God has done. And so at Calvary, we have in our statement of faith what we believe about the Bible. And we state this, we believe that the Bible, both the Old and New Testaments, is the sole and absolute authority in all matters of faith and life that it is divinely inspired without error in every word and completed as originally delivered. This is what we believe. This is what we teach. We believe that it is to be taken at face value and where possible it is to, you're to interpret it according to the normal reading of the text, keeping in mind the various literature styles and grammar. But that's what we believe. That's what we teach. We believe that it is the exclusive source of truth about God and faith, life, and practice. The Word of God is also called, in your Bible, the Scriptures. What does that mean? 
Well, it's a translation again of the word graphe, which means that which is written. So when you read a text like 2 Timothy 3.16 where it says all scripture is God-breathed, it's saying all that which was written and recorded and, and authorized by God is God-breathed. We're going to look at that a little more in depth in a few moments. It was endorsed, the word of God has been endorsed by Jesus in John 17.17, 17, your word is truth. You don't get it from a higher authority than Jesus. He's declared the word of God truth. And so um, it is the exclusive source of truth about God. In Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians, chapter 1 and verse, or chapter 2 and verse 13, the Apostle Paul makes a tremendous declaration that I hope is on your heart as well when he writes, and we also thank God continually Because when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as it actually is the word of God, which is at work in you who believe. Isn't that a great verse? I want to say it to you again. Paul says, and we thank God. I wonder if we we thank God for how we respond to the word of God, because we ought to. We thank God continually because when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as it actually is the word of God, which is at work in you who believe. Is the word of God at work in you? If you are a believer, it is at work in you. In fact, that's how the Holy Spirit causes your life to be transformed. Obedience to the Holy Scriptures is actually how the Holy Spirit changes your life. In Paul, in in Romans, uh, Paul is writing to the Romans and telling them that we are constantly in danger of being conformed or pressed into the mold of this culture. But we are called to be transformed, not conformed. And how are we transformed? By the renewing of our minds. That's how the Holy Spirit changes us, by our obedience to the Word of God. Let's be clear about this. By our obedience to the Word of God, the Holy Spirit changes our lives. That's the cooperation with with which God uses His Word. We ought to have a non-competitive clause in our lives in terms of whatever I read, whatever I hear, whatever I see. It will not compete with the truth of God's word as it measures itself against God's word. When it comes to adjudicating what is true, I love what the, uh, the prophet Isaiah says in terms of the Bible has no competitors. In Isaiah 40, and most of you probably know this verse off by heart, in Isaiah chapter 40 and verse 7, Isaiah writes, the grass, grass withers and the flowers, what? Fall or fade Because the breath of the Lord blows on them, surely the people are grass. So he interprets for us what he's talking about when he says the grass withers. He's saying people wither. And the glory of humans will fade or fall. But then he says in verse 8, but the word of our God stands forever. There's a lot of people writing things, a lot of people saying things, a lot of humans doing this and doing that. Humans will wither and fall. But the word of God will stand forever. So what you believe to be true about God will stand forever. So God's word is our primary source of truth. And I I would encourage you to adopt a non-competitive clause in your life. The Bible has no competition for truth. Secondly, the scriptures are God's provision for a God-saturated life. Would you turn in your Bibles to a very familiar text, 2 Timothy 3.16. should be easy to remember this one. There's John 3.16, which we all know, that's that sort of the verse we, we default to. So you can remember that this imperative verse on the Word of God is found in 2 Timothy 3.16. It's easy to find that when you're trying to show someone about the Word of God. But Timothy is 
contextually here, Timothy is the young protege of, of Paul. And Paul can go to Timothy, this young protege, and say, Timothy, I want to show you, or I want to talk to you about a God-saturated life. Earlier in the text of chapter 3, he has talked about a godless life. And then he says to Timothy, I want you to, to, to pay attention to my life. And, and, and often we're like, well, that seems rather prideful, Paul, that you would tell your protege to pay attention to your life. Hey, listen. God expects that of all of us. All of us who've walked this journey with the Lord for any time at all. He expects us to be able to say to a, a young protege or a younger person in the faith, pay attention to how I live. Not to take credit for how I live, but pay attention to how I live and I'll show you what a God-saturated life looks like. We all should have that as our heart goal and our desire in our lives. And we should be able to say that to people and say, oh, don't watch my life, <laughs> whatever you do. I, I, I'm not doing anything the Lord wants me to do. No, no, we should have a God-saturated life. And there's only one way to have a God-saturated life. And that's to marinate your life in God-breathed teaching. Got that word marinated from our study book. I like it. A God-saturated life comes from being marinated in a God-breathed God teaching. That's what Paul is going to claim here to Timothy. He says in verse 10, You, however, know all about my teaching, my way of life, how it contrasts against the godless ways of those who are lovers of themselves and lovers of money, which you find out earlier in the text. My purpose, my faith, my patience, my love, my endurance, my persecution, my sufferings, what kinds of things happen to me. You, you pay attention to my life, Timothy. It's a God-saturated life and it's marinated in God-breathed teaching. See, we live in a culture where true now and untrue can actually coexist simultaneously. People seem to be able to embrace something that is true, something that is actually its untruth, and adopt both of them into their lives in some sort of fashion. We're, we're living in a culture where unreal has become real, where, people can, where people's identity is a product of their own personal fantasy. If I want to self-identify as a grasshopper, you can't tell me I'm not a grasshopper. The unreal has become real. Paul rebukes that and invites us into a better way of living, into a more sensible way to live. We're to be seekers of straight talk from God. That's what our lives should be characterized as. You see, your choice in life is to listen to the hot air of men or the breath of God. You see, in this text, in verse 16, it says here, all Scripture is God-breathed. God-breathed. When God decided to create the universe, how did He create it? You tell me. He spoke. The breath of God. And the universe popped into existence. The same word of God that causes the universe to pop into existence, this God-breathed universe, this is a God-breathed word of God. The word of God is God, it's life-giving breath of God. In other words, all graphe is God-breathed, the theonoustos, qualifications of those who read it and who teach it, to whom you listen, should be those who understand this. That's why Paul says to Timothy in verse 14, but as for you, continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of. We need to be people of conviction about the truth of God's word. We need to see this as it truly is. Paul says, I thank you that when you when you received it, when you welcomed it, you saw it for what it really was. It's not the words of men, but it's actually the word of God. 
That, that we as the people of God need to be people of convictions and convinced that what we have is something very special. That God has breathed life into us. And we're called to be seekers. Now before you came to know Christ, you, you couldn't seek him. No one seeks God, Paul writes in Romans. No one understands but after you came to know Christ, after God drew your heart to him, we have now become identified as seekers of the heart of God. That's who we are. Who, who am I? Who are you? You're a seeker after the heart of Christ. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. If you seek him, he will be found by you. That's not a message to lost people. That's a message to those who already know him. Seek after him with all of your heart. That's who we are. And we seek who he is in the word of God. Go to the book. What we have learned, what we've been convinced of. And why is this so critically? Why is this so important? Have you become convinced and convicted of the truth of God's word? How is this so important? Look in verse 15. You have known how you've known from infancy the holy scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. How did you come to know Christ? You came to know Christ through the word of God, the, that, that he has God-breathed. Your salvation, where you found the truth about your salvation. And not only that, in verse 17, so that the man of God or woman of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. It's how you have learned what your purpose is all about. Why did God save you in the first place? Paul writes to the Ephesians, we are Christ's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus, what? To do good works prepared in advance for us to do. It is through the word of God that we, that we understand our salvation. And not only that, we understand the purpose of our salvation, that we might serve God with all of our hearts. It is good for doctrine, it says here, for teaching, teaching what to believe, for rebuking what not to believe, for correcting what to change, and training in righteousness how to live the right ways of God. And why is this so important that we are people of conviction and convinced of what we believe and the value of God's word? Because every day of our lives, and I don't have to tell you this, every day of your lives, you're living in defense of the truth. You're contending for the faith. Everywhere you are, the culture is warring against truth. It is ramming down your throats, untruth, and calling what is unreal, real. And you need to know the real thing, and you need to be convinced of that. In fact, Paul goes on to write in chapter 4 that there's, gonna, there's a time that will come when men will not put up with sound doctrine. They will not put up with sound teaching. They will not put up with healthy teaching. And we live in those days today. Increasingly in the church of Jesus Christ, people want sentimentality and sentimental fluff and things that are untrue and unreal. They want flawed opinions from human beings. Do we understand that what God is presenting to us here in his word is he is giving us the tool, the equipment? It says right here that the man or woman of God will be thoroughly equipped to serve God truthfully and with accurately and with all of our hearts, understand what his will is and what, what, what his ways are and what he wants. I mean, think about this. For those who are suggesting that ideas that are conflicting with the truth of God can be helpful to you. It's like, it's like giving you a, a tape measure and, and saying, well, this will be helpful to you even though it's calibrated wrong. Use this tape measure. A foot isn't actually a foot, but you know what? It's, it's close. It, it's interesting. It's, it's interesting for debate. So go, go build something with this or, or for someone to give you a weigh scale and say, well, it's not really actually accurate. So, you know, you stand on this scale, you don't know whether you're supposed to fast or whether you're supposed to pig out. What good is a weigh scale that isn't telling you the truth? What good is a tape measure that doesn't tell you what the accurate measurement is? What good is a road map that tells you the wrong directions to the destination you want to get to? It's not helpful. It's not healthy. 
But we live in a day and age where people say, give me, yeah, give me anything. Give me a, a tool. I don't care how the calibration is. I don't care if it's right. I don't care if it conflicts with the word of God. I find it helpful. That's Oprah Winfrey theology. That's not Pauline theology. It's not Timothy theology. It's not Moses theology. It's not Jesus theology. It's Eve theology who got us into a mess. People won't endure sound teaching, spiritual healthy teaching. Not only that, it says that um, they'll want to surround themselves or gather around themselves a great number of teachers. There's a great number of teachers today. A greater number of teachers that you are... um, that you are encountering than you've ever encountered before, than any other generation's ever encountered. Most generations before were sort of located in a geography. They didn't have many teachers. Today you can hear teachers from all over the place. Facebook has full of teachers. Teachers on TV, teachers on radio, teachers all over the place. And people are gathering around themselves, teachers, to say what their itching ears want to hear. This idea of tickling ears, just tickle my ear. Just All I want to hear is the outside of my ear tickled. I really don't want it to penetrate into my mind. So give me something that's just fluffy and sentimental. I can find it helpful. Not what you need to hear. Ear salve table talk by people sitting around tables on TV shows, pooling theological ignorance. Drives me crazy. It ought to drive you crazy as you understand the Word of God. Well, I think, well, this is my opinion. Now, your opinion doesn't matter to me. I'm only interested in what God has written in His Word. What does God say? What is God actually saying? I can tell you that, you know, um, I, 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 when, I, when I'm listening to, uh, for instance, dietary suggestions, people say, you know, you need to eat healthy. You need to have juice. You need to have your vegetables. You need to throw in some nuts into your life as a good for you. You know what I'm hearing when I hear that? When I hear juice, I hear Fanta grape pop. <laughs> when I hear vegetables, I hear barbecue potato chips. That's my vegetable. And when I hear nuts, oh, Henry Bar. It's got all the nuts you need in it. So I only hear what I want to hear. But when it comes to health... You need to hear the truth. And God's word is health. God's word will take care of us spiritually. It says here they will turn their ears away from the truth. Can you imagine? Paul's writing to the church. He's saying, Timothy, you know, maybe in your day of passion, you're going to turn their way away from the truth. Because they'd rather run away from it. You can't even tell the difference between truth and, and myths. Tragically, they prefer myths. They prefer stuff that's convenient, less painful, less challenging. But then you get zero transformation. So how crazy is our world? This matter of loyalty to God and His Word takes on a more ominous appearance in the book of Hebrews. Just a few pages. If you turn over in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 4... I've never taught through the book of Hebrews, but I'm going to someday, and sooner than later, I think, because I find it a very convicting book. That's maybe why I haven't taught it. Because when you approach the book of Hebrews, there's a lot of wiggling going on. There's a lot of squirming going on because it's asking the question, are you really who you say you are? And um, the context here of Hebrews chapter 4 is about a spiritual tipping point, which is actually a reference back to Psalm 95, and then even before that, David was referencing Numbers 13, where God's people, Israel, were at a tipping point in their lives spiritually. Are they going to go forward, or are they going to shrink back spiritually? Are they going to go on, or are they going to be trapped somewhere between Egypt and Canaan? And there's a whole lot of God's people today because they are not committed and convinced and convicted of God's word that are being spiritually stranded somewhere between Egypt, which is your deliverance, and Canaan, the promised land, being pleasing to God. 
The scriptures are God's protection from being stranded in spiritual, spiritual oblivion. How important is this reality? It says in chapter 4 of Hebrews, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Now, what's that mean? It means that every time you listen and you hear God's word proclaimed and you refuse to act upon the plain truth, your heart becomes more and more hardened to God's voice. So that if you continue to callous over your heart with refusals to listen and obey, increasingly his voice becomes more and more faint to the place where you can't even hear his voice anymore. And the writer of Hebrews, who is actually quoting from the psalmist, says today, if you're hearing God's voice, don't harden your heart. Obey it. Last Sunday when we made that call, the call to salvation, the call to respond to your salvation through an act of public confession through baptism, the call to join the local church, you hear the word, you, if you hear the voice of God and you reject it, the voice of God increasingly becomes muted to you. Today, if you hear the voice of God, Obey it. Why is that? Because he says here in verse 12 that the word of God is living. This is an amazing construction, by the way, this verse. The word of God is living and active. Living and active, the word of God. Listen, it states here literally in the original, living is the first word. Now that defies all grammar. But there's one person in the universe who has the right to defy grammar, and that's the living God. He says, yeah, yeah, I, I know about the grammar thing. I want to make a point. The point is this. Living to all of you in the generations to come who will hear people chirping about God's word is old-fashioned and out of style and, and isn't, isn't for today and was written by an old culture and it was written about cultural things then. It has nothing to do with our culture and was written in dead languages. It has nothing to do with us. God says this, living and active right now is the word of God. The same word of God that called the universe into existence and raised Jesus Christ from the dead is the same word that is changing your life right now. It's the living, active word of God. It's sharp. Sharper than any two-edged sword. It penetrates even to the dividing of soul and spirit and joints and marrow. You see, you come here with your religious veneer on Sundays. Oh, look at me. Look at Mr. Sunday. Look at, look at how great I am walking in the Lord, rejoicing in his presence. And God's word takes this, it's a sword. And it just cuts right through that religious veneer, right down to your attitudes and your thoughts. God says, don't give me any of that. You walk in here and you look over and you look at someone and you say, in your attitude and in your heart, oh, look at them putting on a big show, like they're so spiritual and everything. And Oh, hi, how are you? You're such a glorious person. I love you so much. You're so wonderful. God knows this. It, it says in the Word of God, we're, we're literally spiritually naked before God. Every day of our lives, He knows exactly what's going on in your heart, your attitudes, your thoughts right now. I've had so many people come to me so many times I've preached, how did you know? How did you know this was going on in my life? Not, you're not spiritually naked before me, but you are before God. And when his word is open to you, it pierces right through, cuts through all that veneer and cuts right down to the truth and cuts both ways. It either brings promises or punishment.
declaration of promised fulfillment or declared judgment? It exposes. Our secrets are unprotected and uncovered. That's why we rush so much to relativize the Bible. Whenever, whenever the Word of God, we're confronted by the Word of God, we're like kid, kids with our hands caught in the candy jar. We start to get all defensive and start to explain away everything and start to, now and then start to talk about how, how God's Word, well, it's, it's, it's interpreted in so many ways. And we, we start to make all of these stupid, foolish statements. Because the truth really cuts through. Or we make some sort of lame covering, put the fig leaf over ourselves. Well, it's helpful. Makes me feel better. Makes me happy. You don't realize that this thing that conflicts with the truth of God's word has healed my hurts. But it's in conflict with God's word. God's not casual about his word. Some take it really, really casual approach. And In chapter 2, verse 1, we must pay more careful attention, therefore, to what we have heard so that we do not drift away. There's a call, an appeal to God's people. If you aren't saturating yourself in the Word of God, marinating in the Word of God, you're in danger of drifting away. God will hold you accountable. He's not a compromiser. He doesn't give participation awards or nice try trophies. We are called to obey his word. Our posture toward God's word ultimately is accountability. We'll wrap it up with this. In John chapter 5, we encounter Jesus again. And in this particular setting, in verse 16, it says that the Jews were persecuting Jesus. And in verse 18, it says they were looking for, they were looking even harder to kill him. Why? What did Jesus do? Well, we find out at the early part of the scriptures, the early part of this text, that he healed a man on the Sabbath. Wow. Imagine God doing God work on God's day. What a bad thing. We're trying to ask ourselves, why in the world would the Jews be persecuting him? Why would they be trying all the harder to kill him for doing that? And then we realize, later on in John chapter 5, that Jesus gives the explanation of those who are persecuting him and those who are critiquing him and objecting to what he's doing. He says to them, and the Father who sent me has himself testified concerning me. And you have never heard his voice nor seen his form, nor does his word dwell in you. For you do not believe the one he sent. And yet, he goes on, you diligently study the scriptures because you think that by them you possess eternal life. These are the scriptures that testify about me. The religious hypocrites are worshiping their traditions and worshiping their knowledge of God's word that they have never applied to their lives. That's the point that Christ is making. You think you have eternal life by simply knowing intellectually the Bible, but you have never applied the truth so that you can't even recognize the work of God. You can't even tell when the voice of God is standing right in front of you. I, Jesus, am the voice of God, and you are persecuting me and trying all the harder to kill me. Yet you are getting awards in how much scripture you know, but you don't apply it. When we pit the word of God against every other thing and every other thing that's written, We are bringing Christ to trial all over again, dragging up the first century persecution of Jesus. To ignore or refuse the word of God is to put Christ on trial. God's truth is necessarily confrontational. I won't take the time, but there's no escaping that our lives 
and our attitudes and our choices and our beliefs and our actions and what we condone and what we welcome are all measured and judged against God's truth. When Jesus came to speak to Pilate in John chapter 18, Jesus said that the purpose that he came was to bring truth. And all those on the side of truth believe him. And all that believe him are on the side of truth. And Pilate is staring in the face of God who tells him that everyone on the side of truth believes Jesus and says, what is truth? Here's what Jesus didn't do. Oh, Pilate, you know, the things you say, I'm sure you have many intelligent things to say, and I'm sure that all kinds of things that you are saying would be very helpful to people. And so, forget that I ever said that what I have to say is exclusive and is truth. And, and, and please forgive me for putting hard edges on the truth, Pilate. Now, what should we do when people are undermining what we have been convinced is true because the Spirit of God has taught us is true, what we believe, what we've become convicted of, what has saved us, and what is teaching us how to live. The Apostle Paul in Galatians said this, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you by the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. Evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion and are trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one we preach to you, let him be damned. And, and if, as, if we didn't hear him and understand him the first time, as we have already said, so now I say again, if anybody is preaching to you a gospel other than what you accepted, let him be damned. We do not make concessions or become conciliatory or cooperate or welcome or compromise on the truth of God's word. Because our posture towards God's word is accountability. Those who belong to Christ are able to clear the clutter and be discerning. Christ is the word of God, revealed, living, and written. The sheep who follow Christ follow him because they listen to his voice and they don't recognize the voice of another. Jesus said in John 5, 39, the scriptures testify about me. And he says this, do not be amazed at this, for a time is coming when all who are in the graves will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good will rise to live, and those who have done evil will rise to be condemned. Do you realize how important it is to know the voice of Jesus now? If you don't know the voice of Jesus now, you won't know the voice of Jesus then. Those who belong to Christ, who actually love him, obey what he commands, John 14, 15. And then finally, Jesus stood before his disciples as he commissioned them, as he's commissioned the church, and said, go and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, and, com com and uh, commissioned us to teach them to obey whatsoever things Christ has commanded. And he said, all authority has been given to me. And by my authority, I'm commissioning you to teach people to obey the commands of Christ, to hear his voice. So let me ask you this morning, are you obeying the commands of Christ and teaching others to obey? Our Father, as we have 
taken the time to embrace what the Word of God says about the Word of God and its importance to our lives. I pray, O oh Father, that we would take upon ourselves and heed the warning that you have given to us in several places in the scriptures. Today, if you hear the voice of God, do not harden your hearts. May we act on this truth, O oh God, for Jesus' sake. Amen. We all know that the purpose of doctrine is not so that we can be more intelligent. The purpose of teaching is so that we will apply the right things to our lives. And so I just want to leave you with, with two challenges this morning that all tie together. One of the core values here at Calvary Baptist Church is that we take God's word seriously. What does that look like? Two takeaways this morning as you leave. The first is this, and I, I learned this from Karl Barth, a theologian from another generation, who said, with respect to every book, every movie, every human opinion, every teaching, put behind them all a question mark until you've checked everything against the truth of God's word. If it doesn't square with God's truth, it isn't true. The second is this. If you are trying to carry the Christian life in your own strength without feeding yourself on spiritual health food, God's word, you will collapse eventually. You will become very unhealthy and your mind will start to play tricks on you. It is impossible to carry the weight of the eternal in your own strength. And so I urge you, if you don't already have this, make certain you have a daily feasting on the Word of God. The only way you will have spiritual health and move forward and not backwards is to discipline yourself to eat to eat the word of God. It is your strength. It is how the Holy Spirit changes your life. There is no other way. Our Father, this morning I pray for my beloved church here, your church, my brothers and sisters, that we would put a question mark behind everything that we hear or read or see and go and check it against the Word of God. And I pray, O oh God, that we would have a very healthy diet of marinating our lives in God-breathed truth that we might be God-saturated people for your glory and for the sake of the cause of the gospel in our region. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.